We Saw a Thing is a movie podcast about remakes and sequels. We saw a thing and talked about it. The following conversation has been edited for brevity. A big shout out to one of our younger listeners who I didn't even know he actually called our voicemail line or our, our, I shouldn't say our voicemail line, our like app line, however you want to call it. Uh, and reached out to us to tell us how much he loves old movies. That's your nephew, Jake. That was Jake, yeah. That was awesome. I, I, I'm so happy that he uh, he's digging it. it. Was like good words of wisdom from that kid. You're uh, you're helping. Well, I mean, you're not raising it, but you're around. You're you're doing good things. <laughs> I got a lot of time for that kid. He's smart. I mean, as you can tell, listening to his thoughts about the thing in older movies, like. He's a very thoughtful person, and uh, I don't know. I just really love talking to him, and he has been pressuring him and his uh, stepbrother have been pressuring me to pressure you to put the thing onto the podcast schedule. So they've been doing that for about six months, so I'm glad that we could finally get to it for them. (laughs) Hey, we got to it for you, but here's the deal. It's a Wonderful Life, Jake, is not the best Christmas movie. (laughs) It's a great film. Are you guys going to have to fight? I am not going to fight a minor, but when you turn 18, (laughs) we will have a go. Honestly, I feel like you are mistaken, young man. I feel like you should make some recommendations of movies that you think are superior so that he can work his way through those. The big part of it is Christmas. This is a film about a suicide, a suicidal man in caught in depression at Christmas. That's the only time. The rest of the film has nothing to do with Christmas. It just happens that the day he decided to kill himself was on Christmas Eve. So by that logic, uh, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. I would not put Die Hard as the best Christmas movie either. Oh, we are going to set film Twitter on fire. Let's go. I'm sorry. I, I, You know, maybe we'll wait until next year and we'll look at some real Christmas classics. But I would say... Home Alone is a masterpiece. You've got Christmas Vacation up there. I mean, those are two just off the top of my head that are better Christmas-specific films. Miracle on 34th Street. We did Scrooge. I would say Scrooge is a better Christmas movie. (laughs) Now, with that said, I love Frank Capra, and I love It's a Wonderful Life. I just don't happen to get to it at Christmas time because it doesn't fill me with that Christmas cheer. I see what you're saying. Maybe maybe you two should get on the phone one day and fight it out. But I do love that we're talking about Christmas movies in February. <laughs> you know what? That is true. Uh, let's talk about something else. How interesting these movies are. We watched The Little Shop of Horrors. And I have to say, I, I enjoyed the 1960s version for a completely different way than enjoying... The 1980s version, which was 1986 by Frank Oz. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I enjoyed the first two thirds of the original movie. It's a weird film. And you and I often talk about weirdness in movies and television series and just stories in general. I'm all about weirdness. You're a little less all about weirdness. During the first two thirds, I'm like, I don't know if Jay's going to like this. I was enjoying every moment. I was loving it. I loved all of the mispronunciations of words or the wrong words in in context for sentences and just said with such utter confidence, everyone in this film is an utter buffoon. All of them are morons. So to have that kind of yelly, 
moronic conversation kind of competing with each other. Sometimes it felt to me like a less well-written, always sunny in Philadelphia script. That's 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 fair. Just because it had that kind of energy. Yeah. The last third of it kind of fell off the rails for me. It turned from overly goofy and silly, and then it took this left turn into like needlessly stupid. Yeah, I mean, the ending of that film... Uh... Was bizarre. Yeah. It was a bonkers ending to that film. You know, we can talk about it because we are a spoiler heavy show. (laughs) The paper mache looking faces of all the people who were in eaten by the the plant. Let's, let's just get it out there, Chris. This is a film about a struggling florist who has an assistant who plants a man eating plant. Yeah. And he talks which is hilarious, and he eats people. But then at the end of the 60s version, it blooms, and its blooms are people's faces. And I was like, what the hell is this? It was when the cops got introduced that I was like, in this universe, nobody cares about death. Yes. Nobody really seems that bothered by it. And that made the decisions to to feed this this Venus flytrap human bodies and blood a little bit more palatable, I guess, within the canon of the story, if that makes sense. Because it's really played for laughs that he's feeding people to this plant. And that's fine so long as the universe is consistent with the fact that nobody really cares that people are dying in this universe. Which, when the cops show up, that's really like, they put a pin in that hard. And it was sort of from that point on that I was like, okay, so we've we've detached ourselves from any semblance of reality here. <laughs> and, and then we went right into like Looney Tune scale cartoon levels of, you know, that chase sequence where, you know, they're back and forth through different hallways. And, you know, it reminded me of the cartoons where people would go in one door, come out a completely different door, go in one door, come out the same door in a different order. So now the person being chased is chasing everyone else. It had that same kind of vibe to it. Absolutely. And, and you know, the thing about the 1960s version is it does feel a little cartoonish. The characters, though, are amazing. I love, love, love Mr. Mushnick in the 60s version. He had me in stitches. I freaking love that guy. Whoever played him was genius. It's a very different version from the, the 1986 version. A lot of these changes that are made over the two are are interesting and necessary and also really, really fun. Yes, I agree. But they also kept some things very similar, too, right? Like, in the original, the first moment that I really felt, oh, we're in for a bit of an odd ride here, was when that guy comes in and starts eating the carnations. Oh, yeah. And he's talking about it like it's just a completely normal thing to do. Pulls the salt out of his pocket. Yes. Puts some salt on, takes a bite. (laughs) And I was like, okay, this is what we're in for now. So that was a nice, like, start to the thing. And I really loved Christopher Guest in the 80s version who comes in and is just like, look at this thing in your window. And he's all like wide-eyed and doesn't blink. I rewatched that scene at least four times. It made me belly laugh to the point of tears every single time. So I love that they kept a lot of that just strangeness for no reason. And, and I was I was on board with all of it, especially, I mean, I got to say it, he is like a hero to me in my early comedy career days. But Steve Martin, as this jackass dentist, was so out there beyond compare to anything else he's ever done. 
And he is so wacky. You're so excited when he's fed <laughs> to the plant. Yes. Well, can we talk now? Now we're on our second episode of the podcast in a row where we're going to be able to look at the remake and say, basically every single thing that they decided to change made it better. Yeah. And I think a lot of that had to do with the rationale behind the bumbling moron Seymour feeding people to the plant. And so I loved that Audrey had this boyfriend who was so despicable that you were happy when he died. You know, she's obviously being physically abused. We see some very clear signs of emotional and mental abuse as well. The guy's a piece of shit. Totally. And Steve Martin plays it with such relish. Like, he is having so much fun being an absolute piece of shit that when he dies and then gets fed to the plant, I was applauding. I thought it was the best thing ever. Well, and that that was another part of it, right? Like, Seymour didn't really kill Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. So you, you have a little more sympathy because it's his own contraption. He could have saved him for sure. For sure. But he didn't. But he didn't, no. And then the second person to die, Mushnik is getting robbed. That guy dies. And there's different choices in the first one. In the first one, Seymour kills his dentist in a in an act of self-defense. Here's the weird thing about these movies. And I just like <laughs> obviously we're talking about killer plants and killing people to feed a plant and all that. In both of these movies, there's <laughs> in the 1960s movie is Jack Nicholas. Or not Jack Nicholson. Sorry, not Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholson. And in the 86 version, it's Bill Murray. And they're both two people who get to live who are obsessed with pain from their dentist. And it doesn't make any sense why they're there. It makes more sense in 1960s because in the 1960s version, Seymour has already accidentally on purpose murdered the dentist. So he has to play as the dentist. But it's so bizarre. That these two characters get to be so overjoyed and excited for the pain that they're going to feel at the dentist. See, and I think that that was another positive change about the dentist in the in the 80s version, because the whole dentist thing in the original is where I started to go, okay, this might be going off the rails for me. Because the dentist came out of nowhere, was completely nonsensical to the larger plot. Like, it really did feel like they were like, oh, we just need somebody who's like a bit of an a-hole so that we don't feel awful about Seymour. And then to have Jack Nicholson show up just really seemed like it was about adding chaos to Seymour. But it really didn't seem to have any more purpose than that. Whereas in in the 80s version, you know, Bill Murray goes in and has a very bizarre encounter with this dentist who likes inflicting pain. And the dentist is really perturbed by the fact that he likes the pain and (laughs) is so angered by it. He's so revved up (laughs) by the time Seymour gets into that chair that, like, all of his motivations start making way more sense. And so that character that Bill Murray plays made more sense to me in the larger plot of the film and the larger plot of, like, forcing Seymour to to be inside of conflict that he doesn't really want to be in. That's actually exceptional. I didn't even see that. I'm glad you pointed that out. I'm glad you saw that it was it was aiming to make him even less likable 
because he's about to die because he wants so badly to inflict pain. I mean, I loved his song about how he loved to inflict pain. It was so good. That's the other thing, ladies and gentlemen, the difference in them is one is a musical and one is not. And thank God it was a musical because there was something about the ending of that 60s version. And I wrote it in my notes, you know, as it said, the end in the 60s version, I went, I don't want to hit play on the new one because if it's this again, I don't, I'm not really that interested in seeing this again. I saw it. That's fine. But then to start with like basically this Greek chorus of narrators. Yes. And then I was like, I wonder if this is where the, the Disney Hercules movie got the inspiration to have their Greek chorus because it oh worked my gosh. so well. And then I read that that Greek chorus line for the movie wasn't ever part of the musical stage adaption. That was brand new for the film. Wow. And it worked so well because you got these three characters who interacted in the world, but only really when they wanted to. And all the time they're kind of dressed up and they're all over the set. And, oh, my God, the set design was phenomenal. It really did feel like a world. It felt like a very lived-in Muppet-style world. I cannot properly describe to you how much I adored the 80s version. Yeah. The longer I sat there experiencing it, the more I was like, I, I'm f- actively falling in love with this movie. I loved it. And the musical part of it was a big reason for that because all the like expanded silliness of it makes so much more sense in the context of a musical because it's already so silly that people are singing about what's happening in their lives. So everything just had this heightened feel to it. And then the look of it having this very like lived in Muppet style world, it just the whole thing just like sank together in this very nice package. Well, and if you don't know, The stage show is by Howard Ashman. He wrote all of the lyrics. And Alan Menken, who did all the music, who, of course, they go on to do Little Mermaid together and then Beauty and the Beast together. They wrote some of the songs for Aladdin together. This was like a huge first collaboration for these two like soon-to-be giants. And as I'm watching the movie, there is a song... Uh, oh, and all the songs are ridiculous, too, because they have to be properly <laughs> ridiculous. Yes. So there is a song about our heroine, our, our lead, leading lady, Audrey. All she dreams about is living in the suburbs and having a gate, uh, like, a, like a chain link fence. Yeah. That's all she wants. Yes. <laughs> and after it was over, because I was watching it with my wife, I looked over and I'm like, I could totally see where, like, how you go from that to part of your world. Yes. Oh my God. Good call. How do you, how you write a, a song like this and then you write a song like a part of your world very close together. And I, I just was like, this totally makes sense to me. Why? Like how you have this, this brilliant lyricist and this brilliant musician making these kind of songs that sound pretty similar one is definitely more serious than the other, yes. <laughs> but it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, we haven't even gotten to Audrey too, who is the star of the 86 version. Dude. By far. How did they get the special effects for Audrey two to look that friggin' good? The, the mouth movements when he, when he's talking and singing were unreal. I cannot think of another movie that we've watched pre-CGI 
that has special effects that hold up like this movie. It looks amazing. I genuinely want an Audrey 2. Yes! The little baby thing. I want it! I want it. I want, I want it. it on my desk. Yes, I want it more than I want a baby Groot. It was adorable. It's the best thing I've ever seen. It is. It was so cool. And the the when it was sucking his blood, the effect of it like looking like it was suckling. Ugh. Holy crap, man. It was so good. It was so good. I read that they went through a couple different directors before they settled on Frank Oz to actually do it. What an inspired choice, because that guy has so much experience with Muppets, so much experience with animatronics, so much experience in front of and behind the camera doing both that, like, giving him a universe like this would just be playtime for him. There wouldn't even be a question in his mind of whether or not they're going to be able to pull off Audrey 2 in a fun and realistic way. Like, it went from such a cute little thing to like such a monster almost on a dime also the voice acting and the singing like whoever that guy is unbelievable so good the acting's great the singing's great uh, dude i cannot get over this movie and I, I you know i can't ignore the the fact that this is skid row in the 80s we have a very diverse cast in the 80s version everybody in the original is is very 60s in the, very, very white. And you can clearly see in the 60s version that the voice of Audrey 2 is like some white dude. Like it feels like some white dude. And then the 1986 version, not only is our great chorus, three young black women, Audrey 2 is Levi Stubbs, who is a black actor. And the voice of this plant it should not be any other voice ever. No, it should. Like I don't know if this man is is dead. I don't know if he's still around. I know that they are redoing this film. They are. And I want Levi Stubbs back. 100%. The way his voice just feels so smooth and cool and then all of a sudden flips to menace. And the way he sings is so amazing in this stupid plant. Honest to God, I, I I was blown away by the plant. The, the plant had a character arc. The plant went from this cute thing that just has kind of an unfortunate eating habit to, <laughs> to this sinister <laughs> monster by the end. And so much of it has to do with the voice acting because not much of the physical look of the plant changed other than it getting bigger. Not much changed as far as making it more sinister looking it was always the same it just kind of grew legs at one point and got a little bit more mobile Uh, so actually a great question for you did you watch the theatrical cut or the director's cut that's a great question i don't know let me look i think i watched the theatrical cut all right so i watched the director's cut so we may have different endings oh isn't that interesting how does your film end I had a giggle fit at the end of this movie. I sat on my couch and I watched the end twice. I giggle. <laughs> I could not stop laughing. It was... <laughs> it... <laughs> 
so there's this <laughs> there's this very extended scene of of the plant eating Seymour <laughs> and then it just kind of cuts and the Greek chorus comes in and does this epilogue where they're basically talking about like how unfortunate this whole thing was and then it's this gratuitously extended sequence of these giant Audrey twos just destroying a downtown center of a of a city and every time they knock something over their heads just look up into the sky and they laugh I, it's seriously the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> we both watched the director's cut then because that okay. <laughs> is not the cut that people saw when they went to the theater. Are you seriously? Look, we're both two weirdos. You really like weird. You really like different. <laughs> Mainstream audiences don't find that fun. The fact that Seymour got eaten, well, they were not there for that. So in the theatrical cut, Seymour gets up and destroys Audrey too, and he moves to the suburbs with Audrey. And as wait, 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 hold on, wait, 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 wait. Audrey doesn't die in the theatrical cut. No, but that makes it such a crappy story. That she has to die. He like saves her. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm out. No. Yeah. I never ever want to see the theatrical cut. What I saw was perfect. He saves her. Oh no, no. And they move to the suburbs. Oh, I hate it. And they. <laughs> And they pan away from the suburb door. No. And there's an Audrey 2 being like in the in the garden. I hate it. No. In the garden. No, I hate it so much. <laughs> Stop telling me about this bullshit ending. I don't want to know. All right. Fair enough. But that is okay. And, and like this was not a huge money-making film. In fact, it is now cult classic. So it is being redone. Would you like to know who is in the new one? Ugh. Yes, but it also makes me so nervous because I think I think okay, hold on, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> you you've just completely blown my mind with this theatrical cut versus director's cut thing because I didn't know I was watching the the director's cut. I thought I didn't know that there was a director's cut. So what I saw, this is the most perfect thing I've ever seen. And um and now I'm like without words that people experienced this in a completely different narrative sense. If you haven't seen this movie, A, I do not know why you're listening to this podcast right now because boy, have we just spoiled everything as we do on every goddamn episode. But do not watch the theatrical cut. Only watch the director's edition. That's, that is, that's what should have been in the theaters. So, uh, Okay, so given that, okay. I do want to know who's remaking it, and I do want to know who's in it, but I'm also terrified because I just think they should take this director's cut and just put it into theaters. Just take it and do that. Don't remake it. Okay, okay. So, Greg Berlanti. Wait, wait, wait. From the TV Arrowverse? Uh, he... Is he an actor in that? No, I'm pretty sure he's the executive producer of the whole Arrowverse for CW. Uh, yes. I believe you are correct, sir. Why would they give him this? I don't know. Uh, it could be somebody else. It could be somebody else because it looks like he is involved with some DC stuff, but it doesn't look like a ton of Arrowverse stuff. I don't see that here. Maybe he wrote it? I've got him as 
director of Love, Simon. No, this is him. This is the guy I'm thinking of. Same guy. Same guy. Okay, so yes. Yeah, he's one of the he's one of the big producers for CW for their Arrowverse. So the Arrow, Flash, Batwoman, uh, Riverdale. Oh, he did. He executive produced the flight attendant on HBO Max. That was great, by the way. If nobody's seen that, okay. But why would they give him? Why would they give him this? I don't know. Maybe it's a passion project. Maybe he has more money than God. I don't know. Here's the deal: playing Oren Scrivello, which I'm get. I gotta guess is like you know the dentist. Maybe I don't know. Chris Evans. Okay. Playing Audrey, we've got Scarlett Johansson. Okay. The voice of Audrey 2 will be Billy Porter. Okay. So not my first, but Billy Porter seems like not bad. So that's all I have of recognizable names on this list, but let me go to IMDb. So Taron Edgerton plays Seymour. No, but that is rumored because he's gotten himself into some hot water, so... He may not be in this anymore. Oh, Seymour's rumored. And so is Chris. Oh, everybody's All rumored. All is rumored except Billy Porter. Okay. I'm nervous about this okay. already. Okay. <laughs> so that's what's happening. It looks like it's, uh, I don't know what it's coming out. Who's to say in uh, COVID times? But I got to say, the 1986 version is is kind of great. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. The music is infectious. I've been singing suddenly Seymour like all week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, just been having a great time. I really am looking forward to uh, your nephew, Jake, of course, critiquing the SFX in this because he did critique the thing at SFX, which here's the thing. I, I have to let you, the listener, I had no idea that that audio was going to be in our last episode. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to the thing. I had no idea that was going to be in there. So I listened to it on the day it came out like anybody else. And I'm listening to it go, I'm listening to you and me gush about the SFX, special effects. And then this little 14 year old comes on (laughs) and and it's like, well, they're okay. What do you mean they're okay? What happened? Don't tell me the CGI is better looking than Audrey (laughs) 2. There's no way. Well, I mean, keep in mind that his movie buff experience lasts, you know, maybe the last five to ten years. His experience with big budget action special effects is, uh, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that's like the entirety of his like new movie watching experience is those ten years. So, like, he didn't grow up with, like, the birth of CGI <laughs> like we did. The way that we yeah. did. Yeah, I know. We're old. We're old. Yeah. Listen, Jake, <laughs> if you want to weigh in on these other movies, I, we would always welcome you and any listener at all. Check out our show notes. There's a way you download the Anchor app and you can just send us your voice messages and uh, we'll uh, we'll find spots for some of your stuff in our show. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. You know what I'd really like to hear from a listener? They're not going to hear this till they actually hear this. I would love to hear somebody send us their rendition of Suddenly Seymour. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can throw that in. I feel like we can copyright, get away with the copyright with that, right? It's like fan art. You can get away with that, I think. Also, we're not sponsored, so we can basically do whatever we want. We could do whatever we want. We are the overlords. We are the Audrey Jews <laughs> stomping through the city. <laughs> uh but yeah i i agree i like the director's cut better everybody needs to die yes <laughs> yes the, a happy ending for this 
isn't fun. No, the happy ending is everybody dies and these giant monstrosities yes. that look like they're sort of built like Big Bird <laughs> crawling through <laughs> cities laughing maniacally. But that's the only way. Yeah. The happy ending for this story isn't for the people in the story. It's for us who get to see these laughing monsters as they wreck a city center. That's the happy ending. It's my feel good before the credits roll. Yes. And sorry, we didn't do the 1960s version that 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 much justice. It's fun. You're right. It ends weird. I mean, it ends with like Seymour's face as a blossoming plant. And he says, I didn't mean it. And it's like, oh, is he still like sort of sub? Is he in the sunken place in this plant? Because Jesus, if he's got to walk around now for the rest of his life in a plant, <laughs> God. Yeah, the superior version of this movie is by far the '80s Frank Oz version. It's just, it's a wonderful experience if you like weird stuff. Definitely, and honestly, everybody in it is like really, really great. Even Rick Moranis, who. He, it, it, I, I feel like Rick Moranis doesn't really know what's going on in this movie or what he's really up to, but he's just great. He's great. He, he's everything he needs to be in this role. Like, if we're going to pick a person in this movie to really give a nod to the acting, it's the woman who played Audrey. She was the original woman who played Audrey in, in this musical stage performance. That's right. She had a ton of experience with this character. There's a moment early in the film where she kind of, instead of saying words, she just kind of squeaks. And in that moment, I was like, I don't know who this woman is, but she is making unbelievably brilliant choices. Just fun, weird, so interesting. And that movie, this movie should have blasted her into stardom. And yes. unfortunately, it, it bombed. It wasn't a huge success. Now, like I said, it's a cult classic, and that's why... You're hearing about it on our little podcast. It's, <laughs> they did a remake. We got a remake coming out. What are we doing next week? Next time on We Saw a Thing. Let's take a look at Ocean's Eleven. Now, I'm not talking about the franchise. Unless, do you want to do the franchise? I'm not saying the franchise. Let's, let's keep it easy on us, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> let's do the 1960s Frank Sinatra Ocean's Eleven. Okay. Matched up. With the 2001 Steven Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven. Okay. It's been a while since I've seen this movie. I have never seen the original, but I uh, I have seen the Sonnenberg movies. And hey, if you want to keep going, maybe we end up at Ocean's 8. Who's to say? Oh my God. Or not. <laughs> or maybe we don't. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's start with the original and the remake and we'll go from there. That's, that's the safest plan. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> we Saw a Thing is hosted by Jay Kennedy and Chris Shapcott. Produced by Shapcott Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and check our show notes for links to our social media and credits and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.